I can't recall any time I've been threatened in my past. Malcolm's prediction that I'm going to be dead soon couldn't be based on any facts that he's aware of. No, he's just trying to get in my head. It's not like he can predict the future, right? Still, I wonder if he's somehow been able to gain access to information while he was in prison that no one else is aware of. Mind games. I just need to remind myself that he's just messing with me. After all, I literally scarred him for life by listening to that stupid idea of carving a 16-pointed star into his chest with a knife like some psychopath. I still can't believe I did that. I suppose it's too little too late for an apology. That whole encounter in the church with the Grinner is still something I think about daily. What did Malcolm mean when he said there were still big plans for me? I was pretty certain we took care of the Grinner that night, but I can't shake this uneasy feeling that we screwed up somehow. What if we didn't? What if he's really still out there? Since Malcolm's escape from prison following our conversation, I've been trying to keep an eye out for anything in the news with his name on it. I'm also keeping tabs on the rising number of missing people around here. I can't help but think they're somehow related. And in order to better understand Malcolm's motives, I've been looking through some of the papers, trying to find anything with his name or possibly other documents that might shed some light on his behavior or abilities. My other concern is Brienne. She hasn't been returning my calls lately, and that's really unlike her. In fact, now that I think of it, I haven't received any communication from her since our phone call I recorded and included on the last episode. I'm trying not to be overly concerned, but the fact that Malcolm escaped makes me wonder if I should ask Ron if he's heard from Brienne. I'm sure everything's okay, and I'm just getting paranoid with that freak inside my head. Still, better send him a text real quick. Alright, back to business. Yesterday, I found something of interest similar to the documents that Detective Anderson sent me back in Season 2. I titled that episode Subject 2214, and had reviewed some journal entries of Malcolm's with some accompanying psychologist notes regarding his behavior and mental state at the time. While all of the names are redacted, and I can't be sure these particular documents apply to Malcolm, I'm finding some parallels that I have a hunch could be important. The only identifying point of reference refers to a Subject 14-3. The first document appears to be an intake form of some kind, with an initial assessment, and reads as follows. Initial impression of Subject 14-3, male, age 9 indicates a calm demeanor and no exhibited signs of anxiety during any of the testing phases or when being questioned. History and physical examination upon arrival was normal, as well as initial psychological examination. I'm going to skip a bunch of the other comments that all indicate this child is basically normal and get to the more interesting stuff. Subject had an unexpected response to fear assessment, including tachycardia and shortness of breath. Recommend additional dedicated sessions to probe further 
into what might be causing anxiety surrounding topics involving nighttime habits and sleep routine. The next document appears to be a transcript of the boy's response to questions asked during what I assume to be one of these additional sessions, but it's noted that this dialogue occurs under hypnosis. It's unclear how many sessions there were, how many may have been conducted under hypnosis, or in what order they occurred. What scares you and why? The monsters scare me. The ones I saw in the movie live in my closet. Can you describe the monsters and how they appear to you? It's just like in the movie. I'm sleeping in my bed, and in the middle of the night, I start hearing whispers that get really loud and wake me up. The whispers always sound like people, but I think it's really the monsters just pretending to be people, though. They always come from my closet, but when I sit up in bed, the whispers stop. Sometimes I try to lay back down and go to sleep, but they always start again and wake me up. After a while, a different voice tells me to open the door. They want me to let them out of the closet, but I don't want to. They promise they'll stop keeping me awake if I just open the door, and they always convince me to do it. If I hide under the covers, they just whisper louder. And they don't leave me alone. One time, I refused to open the door. Open the fucking door. No. I've tried to ask for help with them. Nobody else in my house can hear them. I only kept the door closed one night because I didn't want to hear the awful screaming all night again. On most nights, when I open the door, I run really fast back to my bed and get under the covers. The monster knows I'm there, though. Sometimes it sits on the bed next to me and doesn't say a word. I can just hear it breathing. Some nights it leaves my room. The worst nights are when it sits on top of me. It makes it really hard to breathe because it's really heavy. On those nights, It either just stays on me until the sun comes up, or it talks to me in weird words. I don't understand what it's saying, though. I think it's talking in a different language. It is unclear at this time if subject 14-3 
is just a normal child with an overactive imagination, or if he is truly experiencing what he claims after several sessions. His recounting, when asked in different sessions conducted by different psychologists, remains consistent, and I suspect I will be recommending the subject for MS testing following next week's screening session. The next document I'm about to read appears to be some kind of screening process to rule out certain capabilities of the boy. I'm not sure if it was written by the same psychologist or not, but it does appear to be written from a perspective of observation in a controlled environment. It reads, Supplemental Screening for MS Traits of Subject 14-3 November Date and Year Redacted Present List of Names Redacted Standard testing was initiated with routine MS protocol. Initial testing proved inconclusive. 14.3 is somewhat of a puzzle to the team. Pre-screening and familial observation indicated with almost 100% certainty that he is on the MS spectrum, but the usual stimulus did not result in any MS response. It should be noted that we disagree among the team regarding how to proceed. Objections to further pursuit of testing 14.3 are a direct result of his lack of response. However, as noted, we have never documented a lack of response at all with the genetic markers present. With history of MS reported activity and with the subject's own vivid recollection of related events. Ultimately, we compromised and decided to hold 14.3 under observation with the intention to discuss the efficacy of further testing. After several hours of debate, the team hypothesized three potential conclusions. Number one, 14.3 is neither a maker or a shepherd. Reports are false or at least exaggerated and there were false positives in the genetic testing, along with the subject having extreme vivid dream experiences. I find this to be least likely. However, the subject may be released after debriefing and tagging, should traits develop at a later time. Possible conclusion number two. 14.3 may test positive upon further MS testing, but for some unknown reason, does not exhibit typical response to stimuli that has worked on the other positive testers. Scenario next steps. A. Reorder labs to check for unknown medication usage and any contraindications for testing results. B. Have parents submit questionnaires again and check the originals for discrepancies. Consider separating parents for inconsistencies between responses. Potential conclusion three. 14.3 possesses MS abilities, but has found a way to control his MS response. While no level of control has ever been exhibited by any maker or shepherd at this age, and without extensive developmental training, we have to consider this a possibility, and we should consider extended observation and testing to further learn how this might be possible. If this scenario is ultimately correct, we recommend the following next steps. A. Consider implications and safety precautions for staff conducting screening procedures. B. Have assets standing by during testing. C. 
consider alternate classification categories beyond the current known MS standard and document variations. And D, research new stimuli to help identify future similar subjects based on documented variations from the preceding step. I know what you're thinking. What the fuck is a maker? I'm right there with you. The next document I'd like to share with you appears to have only been one page of a larger set of progress notes. It appears that Subject 14-3 underwent further testing, but I have no documentation indicating which proposed option from the previous document was selected, or if any adjustments were made to the recommendations provided. Progress note, date redacted. It should be noted that after last week's testing session, and in light of its resulting manifestation, the safest and most ethical next step recommended by all team leads is to halt testing until such a time which consultation with the specialist teams in the occult research department can be obtained. This request is on hold, as Dr. Name Redacted has expressed some time and company oversight would be needed in order to proceed with those consultations. Our team has been urged to continue without testing. However, we have argued on several accounts that doing so now, without the consultation of those departments requested, may pose risk to the subject, our team, and potentially others without proper guidance. We do not yet have enough information to determine if the being that Subject 14.3 manifested during last night's sleep test fits either the maker or the shepherd profile, as it portrays characteristics of a known and documented demonic entity mentioned in specific religious texts. The being appears to have intelligence and its own unexplainable abilities, and we believe the only reason it has not left the laboratory is because it doesn't feel the need to, though it has demonstrated the ability to. Until such time that consultation by the occult specialist department is approved, I have refocused attention on the entity in an attempt to gather data to help determine any potential threat level, and in hopes that any information that can be acquired would help explain what we're dealing with and how to keep it in a controlled environment. Testing of Subject 14.3 to be placed on hold for now, along with barcoding and tagging. Barcoding and tagging. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Where have we seen a barcode recently? On the forearm of the deceased from that hotel room. The one that was primarily hidden by the letters C-O-M. Was that person a maker or a shepherd? I recall the prints for that person IDing as Joseph Foy, the victim. Then SCIC security recently found evidence that he was in their building. Holy shit. That's what Fourth Trumpet meant when he tweeted me to look into Gerald Hubert. I thought the name sounded familiar. Okay, way back in Season 1, Episode 2, the news report identified the same victim as Gerald Hubert. What the hell is going on there? I need to ask Detective Anderson some questions about this. But for now, let's keep going with this episode. I know last season we were able to gather information on the Shepherds, 
But what I'm taking away from this so far is that it seems like the makers are an entire second classification of people with abilities. I need more info. So moving forward, I'm going to look into this more and maybe get Brianne's help. I'm definitely going to ask Ron as well. This last document just looks like doctor's notes, but it's extremely concerning. Looks like it was written in a panicked state, and not so formal as the previous notes. It puts to question whether or not Hydra's classification system of makers and shepherds can even be trusted, or if it may have been potentially expanded sometime later. But additionally, it also opens up a world of possibilities that would just change science and possibly religion forever. I should just read it to you and I'll comment later. It reads, Our study of Subject 14.3 has been compromised. The being manifested by 14.3 appears to be hostile in nature, though we aren't certain what motivates it. We've observed new capabilities of the being after our occult specialist was brought in, and what seemed like a provocation attempt was made to communicate with the being. I'll summarize the best I can here. With my limited knowledge of religious practice, the occult specialist appeared to be exerting authority over the being. He explained prior to this provocation that he believed it resembles a specific demonic entity that is well known in the Muslim and Judeo-Christian religions. Therefore, he began treating it as such in an effort to solicit a response. At first, all attempts at provocation had failed, and the specialist was about to conclude testing when he explained that he had attempted to command the being to perform certain tasks under the authority of God. When it failed to obey those commands, the specialist was ready to conclude that the being was not the actual demonic entity initially suspected, because it, quote, wouldn't have the option of disobeying his commands, end quote thus ruling out the possibility of it being a fallen angel. Then it proceeded to do something the specialists considered characteristic of the demonic entity he suspected it to be. It disappeared from sight, but began communicating through Doctor. Name redacted. In a voice not his own, he stated its name. I have been advised not to share its name as a precautionary measure, even in writing. After stating its name, he began convulsing and foaming at the mouth. We assumed it was a seizure, but after 30 seconds or so, Dr. Name redacted, seemed to regain his full normal state and the entity was nowhere to be found. Post-consultation with the occult specialist indicated some unexpected results. He asked if the subject who manifested the entity was brought up religiously. Our records indicated he had. He explained that the entity depicted all of the characteristics of the demonic entity that stated its name for us, including the ability to possess a human being. But the fact that it didn't obey commands given to it in the name of God indicated it wasn't a true demonic entity. His ultimate opinion was inconclusive, but he explained a few things. He believed if 14.3 shepherded the being from an alternate dimension, he said it should still have the same attributes as demonic entities and angels are believed to be extra-dimensional beings and not existing in multiples like human beings do, 
exercising free will to deviate the dimensions. In other words, it was the specialist belief that there's only one demonic entity among the various alternate dimensions, and they have the unique ability to bounce back and forth between them, whereas human beings are confined to the dimension they are in, and there is one for each dimension, with zero capability to hop into other dimensions, without the guidance of a shepherd, of course. There are infinite numbers of each human being existing in various timelines of existence, and only one supernatural entity being shared among them all. He also said that because it didn't obey his commands, and because its characteristics are so similar in every other aspect, he believed Subject 14.3 to be a maker, not a shepherd. He felt the being must have been created by 14.3 rather than summoned from another dimension. I must also state that none of this is supported by scientific data and would be difficult, if not impossible, to corroborate. Still, we all witnessed what appeared to be a momentary possession of Dr. Name Redacted, who has no memory of that brief moment prior to his seizure-like episode. But even more disturbing is that we cannot account for this being's whereabouts. We do not know if it decided to leave the lab, or if it even exists in our dimension anymore. We must still consider the possibility that 14.3, not knowing the attributes separating makers from shepherds, may possess unique abilities exceeding those of either group. Regardless of that possibility, I fear we've released something into the world that no one understands. Okay. So what this tells us is that Hydra and their team of scientists and psychologists, presumably related to the seven-fingered hand with the eye in the center, have been testing children with supernatural abilities and categorizing them based on those abilities. Does that sound right to you? This would definitely explain the M and the S labels on the medical files that we've been trying to gain access to. If those do collaborate to makers and shepherds, we really need to get those open. Where are you, Brienne? If all of that is true, what this also means is that Subject 14.3 created out of thin air a being with supernatural abilities, potentially based on his knowledge of a demon from religious texts. This being seems to have all of the capabilities of a demon, but it is not subject to anyone's authority. Okay, never mind what science can't explain about all of this. What does this mean for religion? According to what I know about religion, God should have authority over everything, right? So whatever this thing was superseded God's authority, at least in that moment. Regardless of what you believe, that poses a huge problem for monotheistic religions. This just fills me with more questions. In fact, an endless supply of questions. I think it's safe to assume that the limitations and abilities of that being are probably only known by its creator, Subject 14-3. As I was mowing all of this over in my mind, 
I felt forced to consider the possibility that Malcolm, though identified in another document as Subject 22-14, may have similar abilities. That would mean that the Grinner could have been the actual demonic entity I learned about, or it could mean that it isn't that demonic entity, but the creation of a maker like 14-3. Is Malcolm a maker? God, I wish I could rule this out. I wonder if Fourth Trumpet knows anything. The other thing that popped into my mind was our showdown at the end of Season 2. We faced the Grinner in a location that should have given us the advantage. A church. I wasn't sure at the time, but I didn't think real demons could even enter a church, or even set foot on the grounds. Malcolm's Grinner did, though. With ease, I might add. What the hell were we fighting? Oh, good. Ron just returned my text. He says, I've been trying to reach her as well. No luck. Fuck. I have this sinking feeling in my gut that her disappearance has something to do with Malcolm. I feel like at this point, I need to assume he's gotten to her somehow, and I can't just sit here. Ron just texted again. He asked if I would contact him ASAP if I happened to hear from her. Of course I will, dude. Seriously? This is not good. I don't know where to begin looking for Malcolm, but I know someone who might. And since I have no way of contacting you, Dr. Patel, if you're listening, I'd really like to speak with you. I need to find Malcolm. The Storage Papers is distributed and marketed by Rusty Quill and produced by Grinner Media. Transcripts and content warnings can be found on our website at thestoragepapers.com. This episode was written and performed by Jeremy Enfinger. Episode artwork by Nathan Lunsford. Sound effects and music by Zapsplat. Episode music by Cody Ditzenberger. And additional episode music by Kevin McLeod licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. For additional bonus content, head over to patreon.com slash grinnermedia. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with more from the Storage Papers.